Would you start with, all right, so? You just did. <laughs> well, it's good to have you guys here. Uh, we're picking up our study in Genesis called God and Man. Um, I, already gave, I already gave Kaya the intro in the car ride over here, so he could probably give it. But we're going to be in Genesis 31 this morning, uh, picking up verse 22, Genesis 31, 22. But just to recap our study, we've been going through Genesis now for probably two years since we were doing the home study in New York. Um, and as we came out here, we just, uh, evident just to continue it. It's just been such a blessing, at least uh, to me as I've been studying it. Uh, but really we're looking at the relationship of God and man. And uh, like I was sharing in the car, I think this time through Genesis, I think God's given me a different side of it. You know, seeing that God is really intimate with man. It's not just these stories. It's not just these history of Israel. Well, these things that have happened that maybe we've heard since childhood and Sunday school. But man, these are real people. And there's a real God who's interested in them, even if they're not interested in him. I mean, we think about Abraham alone. We think, oh, Abraham, he's the father of faith. He's the father of the nation of Israel. But not when he was walking around. None of that had happened yet. We have the lens of history to look through. You look right, he's some man. Or the Chaldees in the middle of Iraq. In a pagan culture. Doesn't have the Bible doesn't have anything and God speaks to him because Abraham was I think Abraham was disillusioned with everything and he was ready and looking for the real God we saw that with Adam and Eve Cain and Abel Noah like I said Abraham Isaac we all know Isaac and his father but then uh, Isaac and Rebecca and their children Jacob and Esau but a quote I read this morning uh, from Oswald Chambers says, Sincerity means that the appearance and the reality are exactly the same. Uh, it's from studies in the Sermon on the Mount. So sincerity means that the appearance and the reality are exactly the same. I read that. I was like, wow, that's good. I think it really applies to what we're going to look at today. And previously on Genesis, God and man, Jacob's birth. He was a twin. We know the story of the birthright and the stew. He was deceiving, leaving, and cleaving. He went to the land of Laban, his uncle, back where really Abraham had started out from, where their uh, family was from. We saw Rachel being overdramatic. She was right. He's like, if you don't give me children, I will die. It's like, it's not my fault. <laughs> I've got other kids, you know. And we uh, had to think a good look at that and how God really heard her heart. Uh, all the maids were given, all the children. She had a rivalry with her sister. And how Leah and her still valued giving children to their husband as a way to get his affection. Leah thinks she's done having children. More children come. God listened to her cry. And we get all the way up to Joseph. So 11 of the sons have been born. Benjamin is not yet. But we see that Jacob, in this time under Laban, as God has been blessing him, he wants his freedom. He's done a lot of indentured servitude to get the wrong wife, to get the right wife, and just to get some livestock. But we see that God began to favor Jacob and his hard work. If you remember the story, the speckled and the spotted, and he put out the sticks and the stripes and, and when they were mating and he'd get more. And we saw that uh, he became actually quite wealthy. He had servants and camels. And uh, he actually had to separate himself from Laban's servants because they were getting uh, in trouble with each other. But he was still under the influence and under the reach of his uncle Laban. 
and a couple questions to start us this morning. Do you feel like God is with you? Don't answer that out loud. Do you feel alone? Do you know God is with you? Do you know you're not alone? Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. And He will not leave you nor forsake you. I've come to know that verse intimately in my life, and I'm sure I only know a fraction of its depth. But I know He will never leave me nor forsake me. Do the circumstances and the people in your life make you feel alone? Maybe they make you feel obligated to something. Maybe they make you feel trapped or guilt-tripped into a pursuit, a relationship, whatever it is that we have a tendency to do to each other. Even with good intentions, we tend to do these things, don't we? I encourage you, seek the Lord for the truth on these things. We know that, but really, in these times, in these circumstances, in these situations, especially with people who are close to our heart, we need to know what God says about the situation. Because our reaction may be one thing. Our natural inclination may be another. So advice from our friends and TV could be totally another. Turn off the TV, don't get your advice from there. Uh, but sincerely, there may be a duty there for you to fulfill. It may not be a guilt trip. You may sincerely owe them. You said you would work 9 to 5. You need to show up 9 to 5. It's not a guilt trip when your boss tells you to be there at 9 o'clock. He's not being over, overbearing. You signed that contract. But also, there may not be any obligation to that demand on your end at all. You may have nothing to do with it anymore. What does the Lord say about it? We've had some good conversations this weekend. I promise I'm not writing this message in response to any of those conversations. These are just the things that were coming out in the study. So I hope you don't think I'm trying to read your mail and give you answers, but may God give you insight in the, into anything uh, that's going on in your life. But how far have you come in life? You're pretty far today. <laughs> it's about, I've been a little farther west, but pretty far, right? But what, through what circumstances have you gone through? And really, sincerely, who do you credit with doing it? Let's be honest with ourselves. Christians might say, oh yeah, God did it. But really in our heart, we're like, oh no, I did it. Or sometimes we say, oh yeah, no, I did it. But then we realize, no, no, that was God. Do we credit him, ourselves, someone or something else, a program, an education, a philosophy even? And maybe they do deserve some credit. You know, there's this whole argument about um, thanking the Lord after a doctor saves you and doctors get upset about it. Or people say, no, 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 the doctor did it. Well, yeah, the doctor did it, but through our society, we've learned a lot of medical things. Who gave the doctor knowledge? Who gave the doctor a brain? Who gave him grace not to mess up and take out the wrong kidney? I don't know. That happens. There can be a combination. But who's the, the real source? And on the flip side, perhaps you blame God. You're not giving him credit for something that happened. You're giving him a debt for something that happened. Have you or I put an obligation on him that was really not his responsibility. Perhaps it was our own. Perhaps it was just someone else's sin. 
You know, as it is for Jacob, it might be time for you and I to go back. It might be time for you and I to go forward. But there's only one voice that can truly guide you. And I'm going to read this whole section of Isaiah 30. Because we know, we know this section. You're going, to, you're going to know the verse when we get to it. But it says, therefore, Isaiah 30, 18 through 26, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or whenever you turn to the left, you will also defile the covering of your images with silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing and you will say to them, Get away. Then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and the bread of increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful and that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys will work the ground. They will eat cured fodder which has been winnowed with a shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. And the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. And Lord, this morning we do ask that you would bind up uh, our bruises and heal the, the strokes of our wounds in our heart in our lives, and our relationships. We pray that for our family, for our friends, for the church at large, for our neighbors, for the people here, God. That, God, you'd bind them up. You'd heal them up. You'd see that they're, you're not a set of rules that you want to put on them, but that your yoke is easy, burn is light. You will not quench them or put them out, but you want to build them up and fan them up and, and make great nations out of each of them. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Genesis 31, I'm just going to step back a few verses to 17 just to kind of get us up to speed on the on-ramp of this interstate of a message we'll be on this morning. It's a little bit of a long journey, but bear with me and we'll get through it. It says, Then Jacob rose and set his sons and wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear the sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. Uh, I mentioned last time, I thought it was interesting that Laban is called Laban the Syrian here. Uh, to try and I think it really explains who he is uh, but he said so he fled with all that he had he arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountains of Gilead let's go on we'll read uh, 22 through 35 and it says and Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days journey and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead but God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. And now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, 
And Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with a sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp, and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do to you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone, because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let them live. In the presence of your brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in a camel saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my lord that I cannot rise before you, for the matter of women is with me. And he searched, but he did not find the household idols. You see that Laban was told on the third day, and I think that's pretty much because they were three days' journey apart. So whoever was spying out on them, whoever was uh, treasonous in the camp, perhaps, saw Jacob leave by night, and they split away, and they ran away and told Laban. Um, and I think that you know God had allowed this, this, this chasm to come between them and the schism to be a distance to kind of give Jacob a head start. I don't know that this whole section would have gone down if Jacob was still in Laban's backyard, if uh, Laban didn't have to ride hard for a whole week to catch up to him and find him wherever he was. We remember, uh, you know, when Jacob went up to Laban's, he went up the west uh, towards the ocean. It was the easier path. And when he fled, he fled through the mountains, which was probably trying to take a less common route, not take the main interstate and kind of stay off the radar. So it took uh, Laban a little while to find him. Obviously, you have to catch the three days up and then the extra three days, so... It's, uh, they, weren't, they weren't close by anymore. But essentially it took three days, and whenever you think three days, I think the cross and the grave. But there's always these little pictures, these little nuggets and tastes of uh, things that come. But God shows up to Laban. Remember who Laban was. He was in their family. He obviously he had, as we'll see, uh, that he had changed the deal with Jacob so many times. He's not an honest guy. He's not a God-fearing man. He's obviously upset that they took his idols. But God shows up to him and say, Laban, I'm going to kill you. He says, Laban, be careful. He didn't speak good or bad. Like, you go handle your business with him, but don't tell him good things. Don't tell him bad things. Don't curse him. Don't bless him. Don't flatter him. Don't try to be the one to take the credit. But the way you can bless him, Laban, the way you can care for him is to let him go. Again, I find it amazing that God speaks to this idolatrous man. It's on his, this, his behalf, because I'm sure if Laban had uh, attacked Jacob in some way, God certainly would have dealt with Laban, but God didn't want it to get that far. And also, more than that, God wanted to protect Jacob. God was watching out for Jacob. God had gone before him, and God was now going behind him. He had a rear guard and a foreguard. And this man, Laban, was deceiving. He was full of tricks. Like my kids talk about Mary Poppins or whatever. Watch out, she's full of tricks, right? Is that what she says? Something like that. She's tricky. But he uses his own family for his own gain. 
Bible talks about stuff like that. Man, you're worse than an unbeliever if you know you open your fridge and you got food and your family has nine. You go, no, no, I'm saving that for the Lord. Man, how gracious is God? Again, God did it for Jacob. He did it for Laban. I guarantee God would have blessed Laban if Laban wasn't so bent on getting his idols. In fact, God was blessing Laban in the past. When we read the scripture, we see that God was blessing Laban on Jacob's behalf. But Laban remained hard and idolatrous. And then God said, okay, well, I'm just going to bless Jacob now. It's time for me to fill up Jacob's uh, wallet and his possessions. And then I'm going to send him on his way. And I'm going to use Laban's flocks to be the starter for that. But again, Jacob didn't deceive Laban. They made fair and square deals over and over again about which of uh, the herds would be his. And Jacob always took the ones like that was the rarest, most, almost like going to the casino and hoping you're going to win. It took the rarest ones. And yet God would take the little tiny sliver of a chance and blow it up into a large flock. And Laban would be like, oh, no, this ain't working. Let's change the deal. And then God would do it again. And he'd go, oh, no, this ain't working. And he would change the deal. So it wasn't Jacob's fault. Laban signed on the dotted line. And God was the one who was giving the increase, right? Promotion comes from neither the west or the east, but comes from God, right? And that blessing ended up being removed from Laban, and it solely landed on Jacob. And we see here, Jacob was the last blessing in Laban's life. And Laban still viewed all this stuff as his somehow, and he wanted it back. His idols demanded it back. But these situations and these times, I believe, truly reveal the hearts of people and the hearts of of a matter. We can have friendships, we can have relationships, we can have uh, jobs or other things, but when push comes to shove, well, who gets fired first? What happens to the relationship first? You know, what turns there really reveals the heart quite uh, quickly. We tend to conceal our true motives, our true desires. We use our flesh to maintain devotion to these idols of our own making. And when our idols go missing, our blessing is not found, we quickly turn on those we say we love. We feign interest in, and we end up sacrificing our relationship with them to get back the thing we want. And no, Laban, I don't think you would have sent him away. I don't think there would have been a party. I don't, you didn't even have a party when they got married. Both your daughters, you tricked them both times. There weren't even big parties then. I don't think so, Laban. And it was the Bible talk about every man proclaims his own goodness, but a faithful friend who can find. And we see that there's these thinly veiled threats. You know, I could have harmed you. I would have gotten you. You know, but you know, like, man. So much for not speaking a, a word of good or bad towards him. I think you're still threatening him. You're still lording it over him. And isn't that like all idolaters or hear the word of God or even face to face with him in a dream? It's quickly forgotten and not applied. But Jacob replies to him, he said, um, I was afraid you were going to take your daughters back by force. That Laban, his uncle, was going to come back and forcefully take his kids back. Like your dad comes with your mom, comes on the plane, and somehow he gets a shotgun. Because <laughs> I know he's not a man of the... <laughs> Man of the long gun. But he comes and gets me by force. He puts me in a full Nelson and says, I'm taking my daughter back with me. I say, no, you're not. You gave her away. <laughs> uh, fight me for her. No. 
And seriously, that's what he's afraid of. Think about that family dynamic. This guy's your uncle. You've been with him for 20 years, and you're afraid he's going to come rob you of your very family. He's a man of violence. And it's saying, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. It comes from Matthew 26, 52. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And not that we shouldn't have a sword, but that we, we shouldn't be people of violence to use it to get what we want in life. I don't know if you remember a hasty vow in Judges 11. I had to look up his name. Uh, Jephthah. He was a judge of Israel. And he made a hasty vow to the Lord. And, you know, if these things happen, when I get home, the first thing that runs out of my door or comes out of my house, I'm going to sacrifice. And why would he vow such a thing? He obviously had forgotten his daughter might come out to him. In his haste to be a judge of Israel and take care of Israel and his haste before God, he vows something totally foolish. Totally tragic. He had forgotten his family. And that's some of the best advice I've gotten about uh, anything in ministry or even in just life. You know, it's all the same. Man, don't let the family go by the wayside. Don't forget my family. Let them be a priority. I'm so thankful that my job allows my family to be a priority. But Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. And when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. This is really the crux of it all. Not about vowing, but it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. God doesn't need your promise. God doesn't need your vow. He knows you're going to fail it anyway. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? From the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. But fear God. And we see Laban searching, even after this dream, and he can't find his gods. His dependence on an idol. He's dependent and reliant on violence. Physical, emotional, mental. We even look at some major, quote-unquote, peaceful religions of the world are bent on using violence to get their way. Because it's an idol. It's not life. It's death. And we'll see, like Laban, when you're dependent on these things and you have idols, you'll begin to go through your family's things, your loved one's things, and treat them like a criminal. When you're not trusting God, you'll stop trusting them, and you'll start treating them like you're untrustworthy, even if they are like Jacob is and the root is, is because we're untrustworthy. You know, a lot of people who will claim you're a liar or a bigot or whatever they yell at you about, it's really more that they're the person who's got those going on, and they put it on you. Because Laban, you're the criminal. But we see here that Rachel, like her father, like her sister, like her husband, like her grandparents, she's cunning. She's smart. Uh, and like Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And she's pretty wise here. You know, God wants us to be wise about doing the right thing. And a lot of us Christians walk around and we're not very wise. And we don't seek wisdom. I mean, oh, God will take care of it. Well, your car's falling apart. Is that a good witness? Maybe God will teach you how to get taken care of. And not that that's the end of the story, but it's like, you can't just raise your hands and say, I don't have any responsibility in the matter. God's given you a brain. 
God's given you the ability to do things that maybe you didn't know you could do before. Just like Leah took the mandrakes from her to try and get pregnant, she takes these idols to try and get back at her dad. Her dad who promised her away, kept her away, didn't have a big fanfare, kind of treated her like property and something to trade for some labor. But you know what? Her tactics, they were no better than her dad's. Her stealing her dad's idols was no more righteous than her father seeking them. She's stealing, she's lying, and it's all out of spite for her dad. She's lying on that same idol as her dad. Albeit in a different way, but it's all using that idol to get the outcome she desires to seal the blessing from her dad. And perhaps there's some of her that wants to trust this idol elsewhere. I don't really know how spiritual she is. She does seek the Lord at times. But she was definitely an emotional sort of person from what I've seen in the scripture. So I wouldn't put it past her to be very spiteful here. Especially because when Jacob came to them in the last chapter, they were like, yeah, let's go. Come on. <laughs> we know how messed up dad is. James 1, 9 through 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And how about you? But me, it's like easy as a guy to be wrathful, be vengeful, and want to use that to get what we want. And there's a time and place to use that strength, to use that anger in a righteous way. But more often than not, and probably 99.99 to 100% of the time, I'm not using it in the right way. But we can't let our family's tendencies our family's sins and our sins, our genetics, our weaknesses, our upbringing determine the walk of our lives. There's a saying that blood is thicker than water, that family is thicker than any relations you can have. In a sense, that's true. Because, you know, you just love your family whether you want to or not. They, even if you don't have a relationship with them, they still affect you deeply. You just can't break those bonds. Even if you're separated, there's still a bond there. But you know what? Jesus' blood and the water of his word is thicker than our family blood. It's better than our personal past. It's stronger than our fleshly weaknesses. And we don't need to stay under their abusive authority in our life anymore. There may come a season there for you to be under it, especially if you're a kid growing up and you've got bad parents, you're under them. But at some point it's time for you to make your own decisions and step out from the influence of your parents. And then you can do it in a right way but man, um, sometimes we have to go through those rough seasons, a bad boss, uh, a tough time, and we need to stay under it to learn what we need to. But at some point, God, like he said to Jacob, is going to call you out from under it. Let's go on. In verse 36, it says, Then Jacob was angry, <laughs> no kidding, and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things... What part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. And there I was. And the day of the drought consumed me, and in the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house twenty years. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, 
Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has been my affliction. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. If I didn't say it before, the title of the message is The Fear of Isaac. The Fear of Isaac. And Jacob's angry, and rightfully so. You know, the Bible says, Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. But I think at this time, Jacob needed to lay it all out there. This was serious. He was being pursued. He has all these people around. He needs to lay out his case against Laban. And Jacob's no kid anymore, anyway. He's an older man. But there may come a time when, when those of us who avoid conflict in life, who don't like those situations, because some of us see conflict out. You know, thankfully, there's not much conflict on these roads, but you drive out of here and get back into big cities, you'll see a lot of people seeking out conflict on the road. But some of us avoid it. And I think, you know, in some sense, it's good to avoid conflict. Why would you want conflict? Why would you not want to be peaceful and peaceable with people? But at sometimes we avoid it at too much cost. And like Jacob, at some point, we must face the music. We must say what needs to be said. We must do what needs to be done. And not always standing up for ourselves, but sincerely doing the right thing and not standing for it anymore. We might even have to run away in the middle of the night. But you know what? Just like Jacob, our problems, they will always catch up with us. and They need to be dealt with. Maybe Jacob could have trusted the Lord more and stayed there and told us, told David, I don't know. Maybe not. But he still had to deal with it. He still had to have this conversation with him. Because Laban would have pursued him probably to the ends of the earth to get his idols back. But Jacob ran away, and I believe to him it was a last resort. 20 years, he didn't run away. God begins to call him out, and he has to go. Doesn't give his two-week notice. He just splits. And I think Laban kind of deserves that, you know? Uh, I don't know if you and I have had jobs before. It's kind of like, I just, I got to get out of this. But try, still, even then, try and do your best. I always try and give more in two weeks um, or have in the past. Go that extra mile, right? But like, his, like Jacob's future descendants would have to flee from Pharaoh, Jacob had to flee from Laban. Pharaoh wanted all the stuff that they had. Pharaoh never really wanted, oh, go, you know, just go, but don't leave my sight, come back. Pharaoh was deceitful. Pharaoh changed the deal ten times, did he not? And we must tell it like it is sometimes, both to those who accuse us and hurt us, and also to those that we've accused and we've hurt. It, we've hurt. It's interesting that Jacob had been cut off from his twin Esau, and he was joined to his distant uncle. But now in his life, it was time for him to be cut away from his uncle, as we'll see soon enough, reconciled with his brother. Do we see him standing, uh, standing by, watching this unrighteous search and seizure by his uncle going through all of his stuff, going through all of their tents, going through all their bags. Rachel's sitting over there, you know, not moving, claiming it's that time of the month for her. And although it's true, she did steal the idol. Jacob didn't know that. Jacob wasn't knowingly deceiving his father-in-law or stealing from him. And I'm sure he wasn't saying, kill whoever you find. You know, it's, again, shouldn't have said that. It's kind of rash, especially with Rachel, the one he loved. But we see that Laban goes to Rachel, and again, he kind of favored her. She was the pretty one. She was the smart one. Leah was too, but you know that Rachel was kind of his favorite. 
And he kind of believes her. So he's not really out to get his daughters. He's out to get Jacob. Because Laban never trusted Jacob totally or, or truly, uh, truly, I believe. And Proverbs 22, 24 through 25 says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. You know, we don't want to stick around Laban too much longer because you do, you're going to turn into him. There's a certain time when that relationship with someone who's influential on you, if they're not good anymore, it's time to, to get away. It's to protect your soul. But they have this encounter deep in the mountains. They have this raw family argument. It's like Jerry Springer, but, you know, Laban Springer. I don't know. Laban Springs on him. I don't know. Maybe they could have named it that. But there was this heated, raw exchange. I don't know if you ever had a family issue where there's been things like that happen. I grew up in a home where that happened. And things like that happened. Not over ewes and lambs and wives, but, you know, there were times when there were arguments. It's hard. Think about all the kids standing around in this. Woke up in the middle of the night. All the servants, like, what's going on? Laban shows up, the swords, his friend, you know, his servants, his army. And Jacob says, well, what is my trespass? What have I done to you on purpose? What is my sin that I've done to you, not realizing that I've done something wrong to you? Why have you so hotly pursued me? Like, am I a fugitive? Are you the, the feds? Like, imagine the SWAT team showing up at your house, but it's your uncle. Looking for your wife back. I show up at my house, you're going to have a little problem. But <laughs> no, because I'll be sleeping so sound. Looking over. Uh, but Laban, seriously, what have you found? If you search my whole thing, so you got anything, put it out here right in front of us, and let's deal with it. If you really loved us, Laban, you wouldn't be so angry. You wouldn't be looking through all our stuff for your idols, wanting what you think is yours back. Laban, instead, you'd be hurt and broken, asking, Jacob, why have you left? Why did you run off in the night? I love you. Think about a father and a son or a mom and a daughter or vice versa, and they, they run away. If you find them, are you going to yell at them? Maybe a little. But sincerely, I'm like, what? What are you doing? What's happened? And isn't that God with us? The enemy, when we get away from the enemy, this is what he does. He goes through our whole lives, tries to find something, tries to call us out for it, tries to take back what he thinks is his, but it's not. It's what God has given us. But you know what? Laban knew. I think deep down Laban knew. You know, if we have a problem with someone, we really need to do Matthew 18. Go one-to-one -one on them. If they don't hear, take a friend. If they don't hear, take them to a leader that you both respect. If they don't hear Take them to the church. And it's not about calling them out. It's not about getting your stuff back. It's about having a right relationship. It's about having forgiveness, if possible, reconciliation. But if not, it's about saving their soul. Or they wouldn't continue in a life being led on by these idols. But we see here that Jacob the deceiver, the trickster, was truly becoming a man who was hardworking, who was honest, we see him fearing God, knowing that God was the one who was watching out for him, knowing that God was the one who had blessed him. And he hadn't even gotten back to that point of the vow that he had made a couple of chapters ago uh, with the dream and the, the bed of rocks. You guys maybe sleep, feel like you've been sleeping on a bed of rocks and maybe you'll get a dream tonight. But he finds himself under attack. He finds himself under judgment. And for what? 
Laban's really accusing him of being the same old person he used to be. He's clearly not. Jacob is clearly a different man. And besides that, it was Rachel, after all, who stole the idol. It wasn't Jacob. It was your favorite daughter there, Laban. Isn't that the case for all of us as believers? As we begin to follow God, our old ways go to the wayside. He begins to make us new and different and changed and somewhat responsible. And then sometimes our closest friends and family may begin to show their true colors, even if they claim to be believers. We try to remain honorable for year after year after year. But at some point, separation has to happen. And it's usually not because we want it. When I lost my friends after getting saved, it's not because I didn't want to be their friends anymore. It's because they didn't like hanging out with me because I didn't want to do the things they want to do anymore. And I started talking about Jesus. That was probably annoying and obnoxious. I'm, you know, I still am. But you know what? I still want to be friends with them. And I would still like to be friends with them now. If there's a reunion next year, I would, I'm not going to hear about it. But you know, I would consider going. Although I don't really want to pay to go back to New Jersey. <laughs> Maybe I can get arrested. And, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Free trip. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But it's not usually because we want it. It's usually because they force it. Because their sin, their idolatry, demands it and projects it on us. Their idolatry versus our inherited righteousness comes to a head. And only one is going to prevail we remember like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. All these guys cut themselves, screamed all day. Their idol couldn't hear him. Elijah jokes on them, maybe he's in the bathroom. <laughs> he can't hear you. <laughs> he's busy. Maybe he's taking a nap. He says, God, that they may believe. Send fire. And all that water he poured on was taken up. And it was clearly evident that day. And the people watching around saw and there's people around this deal between Jacob and Laban that are looking and listening and watching. People close to them, their family, people not so close to them, and their servants. But he says, these 20 years I've been with you. Seven for Rachel, and you gave me Leah. Seven more for Rachel. And it was, <laughs> you maybe serve you more. I still had nothing. Six more to get all these livestock. And Jacob is no spring chicken. He could be up to 60 by now. He's older, he's wiser, and I believe he's finally come to a point where he can defend his actions. He couldn't defend his actions back when he was leaving his home with Esau and his mom and his dad. He says, I've done you no wrong, Laban. And again, he can't say the same about his very twin brother, the one who he's actually heading home towards now. He can't say, I've done you no wrong, Esau. I've done you a lot of wrong, Esau. So much so that you wanted to kill me. And you would have if I didn't leave. But he's going back because God's telling him to go back. It's not a rash decision. It's because it's time for him to go back. He's not conniving. He's not deceiving. He's not being crafty. He's not being self-willed. He's not being selfish and desirous like he was as a young man. But he's learning to follow the Lord. Even if that costs him. Even if that puts his life at risk. His life is at risk leaving Laban and his life is at risk going back to Esau. But 20 years later, he's rich. He's got a big family. They will become a great nation. But deep down, I believe he's starting to, God, to get that God is the one who's truly blessed him all this time. That he doesn't need a fake idol. He doesn't need an abusive uncle. He doesn't need even that birthright that he connived for. But that he just needs to listen to God who promised him in that dream as he laid on those rocks. 
and a God who delivers nothing but good and truth. And whose only demands, unlike Laban's, is personal righteousness and obedience in the light of what God has done for him and promised him. And God's not going to change the deal ten times on him. But can you see this passionate, legal, personal, yet public argument that they're having? Pleading his case with Uncle Laban. Laban, what? What have I done? I've done nothing to you. But Jacob's pleading his own case. Not that he necessarily has to. God would take care of it. But he, I think in some sense, it's good here. But is that not the heart we're to have for others and for God and his case in their life? It's like 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21 says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he's telling Laban the same thing that he told his family a week earlier. He's leaving because of Laban. Now, Laban, man, you changed your deal for me. I can't stay there anymore. I can't be around you anymore. I tried. But God's calling me elsewhere. And this season under the, uh, and around the influence and this reach of Laban, obviously, is about as far as Laban wants to go. We'll see. But it's come to an end. And not because Jacob's fed up with it. I'm sure he was. There's many times we get fed up with things. We get fed up with work or relationships or whatever. You got to go, no, keep working there. Don't quit. You know, it's not time yet. But he knows he needs to return to the promised land, that God has given him the okay to depart now. But the time was right now, 20 years later. God is blessing him, his family, his possessions, he has more than enough of a changed heart to continue on the right path that God intended all along. And, and meanwhile, as we'll see, God is working in Esau's life as well. But none of them know it yet. And it took a season of 20 years of hard work for an unthankful and untrustworthy uncle and father-in-law for Jacob to finally be at a point where God can truly get a hold of him. And God wanted that 20 years ago when he was dreaming, but Jacob wasn't ready yet. That's the same with us. God's ready right now to give you every promise He has for you. But we're the ones who aren't ready. We're, not, we're unwilling, like Jesus said, you're not ready to receive it yet. I tell you earthly things, you don't understand how you understand the heavenly. But it's all been set up to bless Him. Like we know in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are the called according to His purpose. But Jacob's ultimate defense was that he knew God. He didn't whip out his sword. He said... God's the one who showed up to you last night. Why didn't you just turn around? He knew that it was God convicting Laban. That ultimately it was God setting it for him. He laid out his case. But the point of the sword that he gave Laban was that it was God. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans twelve nineteen, And Psalm 61, 3. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower for the enemy. And you know what? There's all these things going around in Christianity right now, like rebuking the devil. There's even songs about it. Tell them not today. No. You don't need to tell them nothing. You fight him with Scripture. Recite Scripture to yourself if you hear the devil. Or even to him, the Lord, in response. But you don't need to let him know, not today. He just won. He just won. That's his tactic. 
Because you have no authority over him to tell him not today. Just as he has no authority over you to tell you not today. Jude 1, 8 through 11. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Laban was rejecting the authority of God in that dream. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. Michael the archangel didn't even say anything to Satan. And they're from the same place. They're cut from the same cloth. But he says, the Lord rebuke you. Just like Jacob said to Laban, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil, whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, just like Laban, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Thankfully, Laban doesn't die here. And as we're getting to a close, I know we're going a little long. Let's finish out. 43. It says, And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock, and all that you see is mine. But what can I say, what can I do this day to these my daughters, or to their children whom they have born? Like, this is all mine. What am I going to do to my, well, I can't take it back because of my kids' wishes. Now therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there on the heap. So that must have been a pretty big heap. You know, unless they just made like a picnic table. I don't know. Um, but Laban called it Jaeger uh, Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Uh, and Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Uh, also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see God is witness between you and me. And then Laban said to Jacob, Here is the heap, and here is this pillar, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. It's kind of sad that when it comes time to a relationship where you have to, put a pillar it's like man like it's really sad when our federal government has to get so big that we have to have a law for everything what happened to the hearts of men what happened to the days of being honorable well we're obviously not because we keep making more laws but the god of abraham the god of nahor and the god of their father judged between us and jacob swore by the fear of his father isaac then jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat and they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain and early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. It doesn't say that he blessed Jacob. And then Laban departed and returned to his place. And again, we see Laban claiming that all of this was his. And he truly never gave any of this stuff to Jacob. Those are my daughters. Yeah, you married them, but they're my daughters. Those are your flocks. Yeah, you won them fair and square. And God bless you, but they're my flocks. They were still there. They were close by. And he really let him think that he was giving him all these things, but Laban counted them all his. But Laban thinks God's blessing on Jacob's life and the absence of God's blessing in his own is Jacob stealing from him. It's not. To me, that sounds a lot like the modern idolatrous mindset and the political leanings sweeping our nation. And man, you have a blessing and we don't, so you must have stolen it for us. We need it back. No, you never got up off the couch and got a job. It's your responsibility 
not mine. I'll help you if you want to do it. But I earned this, not you. Fair and square. We see they make a covenant, you know, that their simple word. And it's really Laban making a covenant with Jacob, which is, again, reverse. It should be Jacob asking Laban for a covenant. Because their word was not good enough or trustworthy anymore. Although Jacob's was, Laban's wasn't. And they, because of that, they needed this pillar, this altar there. And man, I think that's why we don't need pillars and altars and a temple and a place to go and worship God anymore. Because we've seen that his word is enough. We've seen that the sacrifice on the cross is enough. That what God says to us is trustworthy because of the cross. I don't need to build up anything else as a monument or an idol to what God says in my life. I just need to look and remember the cross. That he crossed those lines for me. And he'll never leave me nor forsake me. That even though I've been the one stealing, I've been the one claiming it's all mine. He's the one who's given it to me. And we see here that they eat on this heap. It's a legal proceeding. But you don't really eat with your enemies. You know, we see if we read the law that how many times God wants eating involved. And we look at Jesus, the disciples, how many times eating is there. There's something intimate about having dinner and, and hanging out or having lunch. And it's, it's generally you're not going to, you know, kill the person across the table unless it's Han Solo and Greedo. I don't know. But <laughs> Han shot first. But uh, you don't eat with enemies. You eat with friends. You eat with family. And sadly, they had this meal and it was their last meal together as family, I think. You know, they could have gone to Olive Garden because when they're here, they're family. Sorry, bad joke. I, I, <laughs> but he said, may the Lord watch. Like Laban, again, is like, may the Lord watch over you, Jacob, so when I can't see you, you're not going to do anything wrong to me. Like Laban still doesn't get it. The dream happened, and the dream is recorded in Scripture, and it's evident that Laban knew that it was God, and Jacob knew it. But Laban still wanted God to be the one to keep watching them. You know, they weren't going to see each other anymore, but they wanted this deal to be ratified in heaven. And it was good. You know, if there's going to be an ending to this, you know, obviously there could have been a better one. But it's good that they let God sort it out in the end. Even though that they have different types of men, their words are worth different, there's a, there's a cut, there's separation, but at least they've left it in God's hands. No more deals, no more trades, no more payment. God's going to watch between us. That's the final deal. And finally, Jacob gets to leave and cleave with his family 20 years later. And again, how necessary is that in a marriage to leave and cleave? Yeah, we have great relationships with both our sets of parents, but at the end of the day, they don't call the shots in our relationship. They might give us advice or help us out from time to time, but we don't owe them anything in that. Of course, I'd want to help them, and I'd feel indebted in a sense like I'd want to help them, but at the end of the day, if God's calling us to do something. Sorry. God's the boss. But they call it Jaeger Sahadutha. I always think of Pacific Rim. If Mario was here, he would think it's funny, but they were Jaegers. But Jacob called it Galid. You know, we see Aramaic and Hebrew. That there basically there was this witness heap between them. And hopefully this deal wouldn't be a pile of garbage between them, like every other word and deal that Laban had made. And these men spoke two languages differently, natively. And by the way, Laban dealt with their past arrangements. There was clearly something lost in that translation on purpose. So there's a Mizpah as a watchtower. 
But again, I think it's great that God was explicitly brought into a relationship, and we need to do that, especially when things get hard. Make sure that we're praying. Make sure that if there's an opportunity to bring God into something, we do. Like 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion is light with darkness, and what accord is Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That Jacob had to come out from Laban's unclean influence. Just like Abraham had to come out from that area as well in the land of his father took Abraham quite a while to get out there. But when they couldn't keep an eye on each other, God would be watching them. Again, Laban didn't really need this agreement. Jacob had done him no wrong. We see this non-military zone, kind of like there is between North Korea and South Korea. You know, there's this line, you don't come over here and, and we won't go over there. Or when you're little, you might split the bedroom down the middle. That's uh, my side of the room. But you don't come here, Jacob, and I won't go there. But this distance between us, this split in our relationship, let's just say we're amicable from this point forward. Again, don't, don't come back. Don't come back here, Jacob. But I'm not going to pursue you. I think it's interesting that Laban says it's the God of Abraham and Nahor. And I don't know that Nahor followed God like Abraham. Maybe if I was more educated, I would know that. But perhaps. But again, I think Laban is just trying to equate their spirituality a little bit. To say, you, you know, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. And it's all good, right? That Jacob was no better believing in the living God alone than, than Laban was in letting the God, let God be a part of his pantheism. But I think it's great that in response, Jacob says he swears by the fear of his father Isaac. I don't know if I've ever read that plenty of times. I don't think I've ever, ever processed the fear of his father Isaac. That's awesome. Not by what Laban said, but what God had said. Jacob no longer feared Laban, but instead he feared God. And like Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That Jacob was finally getting it. He was near that place where he rested his head on a stone. He had seen God be faithful to him despite his past, despite his uncle. And he was learning that counting on God's provision and blessing and promise and not of his dad, not of his uncle, not of his birthright. And I love that what happens next is that Jacob offers a sacrifice, not Laban. Jacob knew that sacrifice was important. Abraham, Isaac, Noah, Abel, they all knew about sacrifices. They all knew the sweet aroma of God when God handles things in their lives. That God handled this, and I'm going to worship him in it. That God was watching out for him was worth far more than he could ever offer or do. And it's great that God was the one who finally put Laban in his place and sent him crawling back where he came from, empty-handed. And when we find our place in God, when he leads us to where we should be, there will be Labans who come in our lives to take what they think is theirs out of our blessing. And like Jacob knew, we can trust God to do the fighting for us because the fight is not truly with our family. It's not truly with our friends, our loved ones, or even people who seem to be our enemies at one time or another. Because if we put our trust in the fear of Isaac and of Jacob, We don't have to fear them. God will put the enemy in his place even publicly if necessary. We don't have to show him. As we close, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. 
that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And God, we ask that in our lives that the things you want us to be separated from, you'd help us separate it from, that those idols we have, we would cast away, like it says in Isaiah, and that you would begin to bless us more and cause things to grow in our lives. And God, those relationships that are broken or need to be broken, God, that you would handle them and heal them and bring peace and reconciliation. God, thank you for my friends and family here today. And God, just bless us, we ask. And God, may your word go out in this valley and uh, may it not return void. In Jesus' name, amen.